2: Hello, hello, happy new season and welcome one and all to the Indie Football Podcast. I am Ed Malian, sports editor of The Independent, but I am not alone for this, episode one, and our bumper season preview. No, I'm accompanied by our chief football writer, freshly returned from the European Super Cup in Skopje this week. It's Miguel Delaney. Hello, Miguel. Hello. How was the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia? Very, very, very warm. Yes, uh, um, heatwave Lucifer, I believe, uh, yeah, yeah. terrorising the Balkan states. Delightful welcome to Miguel's immediate left. We have our northern correspondent, the Pride of Chorley, Lancashire's miserable crown. It's Mark Critchley. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Hello. How's it going? Uh, very good. Thank you. Very good. And finally, I have... Indie football's token Welshman, Jack Austin. Jack, welcome to the first world. Allow me to recommend the pie and mash. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, that is the introductions (laughs) out the way. And first of all, I would like to thank everyone that listened to our pilot episode zero, which, despite going out of date very quickly due to the way the summer's transfer market has worked, was a great success. So, thank you very much. Today, we do have a bumper bumper show to kick things off, including but not limited to a club by club preview of each Premier League team season a look at the key battles at the top and bottom and hopefully a little nostalgia as well as some listener questions. So without further ado, let's get things going and we'll start off with Miguel at the top of the alphabet. It is Arsenal. Mm-hmm. A big step back for them last season, Migs. Uh, finishing sixth in the end. Sixth? Fifth?
1: It was fifth. They're,
2: yeah, They, were, they yeah. beat United. We no, United. Sorry, yeah, United finished. Uh, United uh, kind of tossed off those last two games.
1: Uh, Arsenal finishing fifth. Have they got better? Um, I think it's, Quite hard to say. I mean, the interesting in all of this is actually that Wenger has done for, I suppose, what everyone was kind of criticising for for the last decade. and uh, He actually changed something significant. He's gone to a back three. And it does seem to have an initial effect. It does seem to have kind of solved a few issues. Um, now, I suppose the one thing is whether that is actually sustainable. I mean, it still looks like he doesn't quite have the defenders. Do you think
2: everyone's wanted him to do that in terms of every, everyone has wanted him to change? Or everyone has wanted him to have a bit more variety because certainly for the last ten years the criticism has been that they always play football the same way. Mm. Um, they haven't necessarily changed their style of play, but just the shape of it.
1: But, I mean, the, the great frustration with Engel was basically, I suppose that he just, n- despite you know, kept, uh, so much evidence against what he kept trying to do, he was almost he, he was almost he kept he had this determination to prove himself right, so he'd keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And like, I mean, I think. It, 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 for Ferguson's last autobiography I think one of the most interesting things about it was the little, the little kind of half page on how towards the end we just realised how, how Arsene played and we beat them every single time uh, but it's also, so Fenger's finally started to adapt to that but even still it's, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he reacts when teams inevitably figure figure the system out a little bit I think the same could happen to Chelsea in that regard um, I think it has that enhanced the team a bit uh, in terms of signings Klasnich was very impressive with the community shield Lacazette
2: is he gonna be one of those guys that was like the, the cult thing is gonna get very boring and great very quickly?
1: That is a worry. Yeah, that is a yeah. worry, yeah. I mean, even you can you kinda of can't mention Grand Jack in any context now without no. just streams were coming in. Um but Lacazette
2: You mal- tipped him to be your flop of the season
1: in our season preview. Uh I panicked because I couldn't really think of anyone else, but and I just meant the community shield. Uh, <laughs> but but the thing about Lacazette, I suppose. I mean, Arsenal basically need a significant upgrade up front. It's, what, it's been one of the main issues of the team for years. They've, you know, toyed with Sanchez there. Um, and I think Lacazette is good, but th- there is a reason. I, I think he's better than Giroud and, and will score more than Giroud. But there is a reason that Arsenal didn't have too much competition in for him, that he's only been on the fringes of the French squad. And I, I, I only worry for them. I think they're only going to be a slight upgrade on Giroud. Um... But then I suppose a lot of this comes down to Sanchez as well. And if they do keep him, which I think they will for one season, he just him being there will obviously enhance the business they have done. Um, so you now
2: think they're going to keep Sanchez? Last time we spoke, you predicted that Wenger would eventually end up selling him. Well, because
1: what I've heard now from City since is that well, uh, is that Guardiola basically wants to or is willing to wait himself. Right. Okay. And then get him on a free next summer. I yeah. guess. Critch. Um,
2: Arsene Wenger still being there. Is that a positive or a negative? I would say
3: a negative overall. Um, His I was gone. very much in the camp last year that even with the FA Cup success, it, it was time for a change at the club and it was time with all the the fans, the fans yeah, unhappy fans yeah, unhappy yeah, in the yeah, stand yeah. and all the rancour. It, it just felt like that was the point where a good point of departure to say thanks, but no thanks, not anymore. Um, the fact that he's still there now, I don't think it inspires confidence for the rest of the season. If you look at the top six, to me, they are sixth, yeah. and they have the least room, room for manoeuvre of any club in there. Um, so yeah, overall, I'm not that optimistic about their chances this season. And, and
2: Jack, you didn't have them in the top four in your season preview. I did. Oh, you did. I did. You did. Yeah. Why do you think oh. they're going to be in the top four?
0: I, I, I think if they keep Sanchez, which, like Meg said, they looks like they
3: will. It now. is a strong.
2: It is a strong side. If you have Meza Özil. Alexis Sanchez, Alexandra Lacazette, and then, you know, in that fourth spot, you either got Iwobi or Welbeck or Walcott, you know, guys who have been productive at times.
0: Well, yeah, and also, when they switched to the back three last season, they actually looked decent. They looked like a rejuvenated side. And they presumably could
2: still function with the back
1: four. The one thing about it as well, I just with the back three as well, I do wonder whether this is the good form they've had around winning the FA Cup is just kind of you know the way so when someone makes a change, and because just but fact it's changed, there's just kind of a bit of a rush through the whole team. It just they just benefit that. But then once that wears off, then it kind of re- reverts, and mm-hmm. that's kind of and like ultimately the main problem with Arsenal, I suppose. And just as, as Critch uh, alluded to, I suppose it's a very quite an indulgent club. It, it doesn't really have like Wenger last decade has it's 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 been it's allowed. Players to just, they, they lack a bit of edge essentially.
2: Yeah. But we've got a listener question for every single club, and for Arsenal, it's an obvious one. Can Arsenal keep Sanchez? That is from Dominic Smith. Critch? I think yes, they can. Um, I wrote about this last week
3: uh, in relation to Cater, and I think it matches with Van Dijk as well. There's something you've seen a trend where a lot of clubs are using the power that they've got in the transfer system in order to hold on to their players, even if it means missing out on money. And You know, if it means keeping Alexis Sanchez unhappy for a few months or a few weeks up until the 1st of September, they can do that. And they're willing to forgo £50 million in order to have uh, Alexis Sanchez in their team this season. So, yeah, I I think it will stay right now. And that matches in line with what we've seen going on throughout this transfer window
2: so Miguel and Critch both think he'll stay Jack do you think for he'll a stay? year for a year for, for one year, year. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, year. yeah one year I think
0: he'll stay I think Wenger has pretty much learnt from his mistakes with the likes of Van Persie and Nasri and finally realised that he holds
1: the power he doesn't have to sell him to a but Premier League rival also if this is Wenger's last contract who knows this point then what, like as you said there with Van Persie he was still going to stay what five ten years who knows that at that point but basically, he could still build. Whereas now, it's about, it's about the now mm. for Wenger. He's about mm. getting it done now.
0: Similar to like Ferguson with his yeah. last season.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
2: I mean, you're going to be very, very, very win now, mm. as they call it in in American football. Uh, we're going to move on because we've given Arsenal probably way too much time already. Uh, Bournemouth are next alphabetically. I'll start with you, Jack, because Bournemouth is kind of near Wales. <laughs> is Jermaine Defoe their saviour? Mm. Is he overpaid yeah. or is he both? I mean... Is it
0: possible to overpay a player who performs for you? I think if he keeps you in the Premier League, then you've, he's worth exactly what he's worth. Um, I think it
2: is a, he's thirty-four and they've given him a three-year contract. He was on the, enormous wage. He was yeah. the
0: top-scoring Englishman in the Premier League last season. I mean, he didn't. It wasn't enough to keep Sunderland up, but I mean, Sunderland had a lot more problems than their their main
2: striker yeah, i think that's yes, true and, and he is known to be a good influence around the change room etc etc which i think is important um another new arrival for them nathan ake 20 odd million pounds it's a lot of money for a player who has had half a good season uh, he, i think he's he's versatile he's got the pedigree obviously
1: having come through at chelsea miguel have you seen much of him he was he's been impressive at bournemouth uh, i think i I think I'm slightly disappointed from the sense. That I think he could have been a good squad player for Chelsea, and they, they kind of need that at the moment. as we, we'll get to Chelsea in a minute. But yeah, I think for, for Bournemouth, uh, I think they did look much more solid with him last season, and I think he will progress there. Uh, the listener question is not
2: from a Bournemouth fan, but it is: How long will Eddie Howe stay? Is there any danger of him going anytime soon? Do you think? I, th- I mean, he appears quite settled. Uh, if I was going to expect him to go anywhere, I think he could be. Possibly a guy to succeed Guardiola at City. He's a, a would you, name.
1: Would you go? That, would you go from Bournemouth it, to City? But
2: it's just a name. It's a name that comes up. Mm. It's, it's it's come up too many times for me to think that it. Uh, there's nothing in it that uh, he isn't
1: at least admired by. I think with the nature of how City work, they'd want a bigger name. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. But I, but and, or, sorry, not not necessarily A bigger name, but a, a name that's proved himself at a level close to the. I think. I think how's next job when he eventually leaves and I think there, there could be it is a possibility he could do a kind of curbishly a Charlton type thing there um, but I think his next job almost has to be kind of an Everton or yeah. something mm-hmm. like that yeah.
2: I, I see the logic I see the logic what I'll say is um, Pep Guardiola and, and that sort of school of thought the Bielsa thing etc um, the idea is pure coaches who are you know brilliant at coaching etc etc not necessarily where they've coached and all the other things so I think if Pep does have an influence and if Pep has a say perhaps in his success, I mean, we're going way down the line here. This is a bit of a rabbit yeah. hole. But uh, we all think Eddie How's going to be there at, you know, this season. Yeah,
3: like Miguel says, I think the problem for Howe is that he's kind of unique in the sense that he's been linked with Arsenal and we've just mentioned him in the same name of yeah. Manchester City. And yet he's never had experience at that level. So where does he make the jump? I think a club like Everton perhaps, but for now they're settled. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, and he's settled at Bournemouth, so it's like, long term, where do you see him? I think he's there for a few more years, and then maybe if there's a bit of turmoil at one of these kind of clubs that are just outside the elite in the Premier League, I definitely don't see him moving abroad or such, um, then that's where he makes his departure. But for now, he's he's there, and I, I can see him staying there.
2: Potential future England manager, of course. Um, I understand he will be invited down to St. George's Park uh, to see how everything works at some point this season. But Gareth Southgate is likely to be in charge till 2022 at the very least. So, Eddie Howe will be staying, uh, according to everyone in the team. Uh, we'll move on to Brighton next. Brighton, of course, uh, having been promoted, uh, I believe, in second place, despite having a ton of mm-hmm. champions scarves printed up. That's a shame. <laughs> uh, how hard is it for a team like them to come up and feel comfortable in the Premier League, Miguel? Um, well,
1: we have, we have seen kind of a certain expansive sides actually come into division and in, in immediately take them. I mean, Swansea is supposed to be the most famous example. And I think Brighton are run along similar lines to Swansea when they came up in terms of kind of the scope of the club but at the moment not necessarily how the team plays and that's my slight worry for Brighton I think they actually they, they do have the capacity to but I, th- I think Chris Uton is almost like his uh, his former Irish international teammate Mick McCarthy in that he is an excellent manager for the championship but I have found him kind of slightly limited in the Premier League I suppose that we we saw at, at Norwich in particular now we did do a good job at Newcastle before that but even then his football does or his approach in the Premier League has always felt a little bit too Restrained, and this is in the Premier League. I think that's more open and more um, conducive to attacking football than ever. Uh, so that that would be my, my slight worry for Brighton. So, but and it's it's almost one of those incredibly tricky situations for clubs. And again, again we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But <laughs> you know, do you, do you stick with the man who kept you up, or look to continue making leaps, which was Hampton did when they came up. They you know dropped Atkins as soon as. Really well, really the interesting like,
2: thing is they brought in Hughton because he was a safe pair of hands. It was, mm. If you remember, they had Sammy Herpier in charge, yeah, yeah. and they mm. and this is the whole Brighton philosophy is they hired Sammy Herpia because he they felt the upside was very high. You yeah. so know, if if he is as good a young manager as they thought he was after Leverkusen, mm. uh, he could get us into the Premier League. Uh, he didn't. They're in relegation trouble. They bring in Chris Hughton, who was a safe pair of yeah. hands, and he guides them from the bottom of the Championship eventually to uh, the top of the Championship and into the Premier League. If you look at their summer business, it's been very similar. They've signed Suttner um, from Ingolstadt. They signed Pascal Gross from Ingolstadt, who is my tip to be kind of a mm-hmm. bit of a surprise player this, <laughs> this year. Set-piece wizard. Uh, creates a lot of chances. Uh, they've signed Davy Proper from PSV for mm. £10 million. Pounds. Uh, I mean, uh, you don't watch PSV every week, but it's it seems like the sort of signing that might... Yeah. end up working out I, I, quite I, well.
1: I, I was being very harsh on Houghton there, given that the season hasn't actually started. But it'd be, yes, I, no. I, think it, I think it will be hard to beat. Unduly it's my, harsh. My, my, it's my just, given the pattern of his career, it's just my one slight concern, because Brighton can, can make a bit of an impact. Their
3: home form last year, they were very strong defensively at home, and I can see that being repeated this year as well. Uh, the one area of concern, maybe, is that they don't have a lot of the ball, and although possession doesn't win you matches, they're playing Manchester City this weekend. Yeah, You could see, um, you know, them having like as little as like 20 25 percent of the ball and in games like that unless you're really drilled defensively then teams like city are gonna eventually break through um i think they're gonna hover around like just above the bottom three basically and i tip them to stay up i think they will stay up but they'll always be in danger
2: the listener question uh for you jack is from tom phillips and pretty much with what we've been talking about with their transfer policy, do you feel Brighton's under the radar approach in the transfer market will benefit them, or should they have gone for those more established prim- Premier League players, like the guys who have been there and have done it? The under the radar approach does work for a number of clubs coming up, like we mentioned. But like Bournemouth, for
0: example, did very well with it. But I think the more there is a there is a call for more established players who have been brought in. Uh, it's like what Critch said before: if you're only getting twenty, twenty-five percent of possession in a game against these big clubs you do need to take your chances. And
2: more often than not, the players that take these chances are the more established Premier League players. And they've got Anthony Knockout, I suppose, who's their star and the guy who they will hope to do it. The next club uh, we're going to talk about is a team that I fear for a little bit. Critch, uh, this is your region. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as Lancashire's favourite son. son. Yeah. No Michael Keane. Now no Andre Gray. Sean Dyche uh, uh, was keen on the Palace job. Are the key figures trying to desert a sinking ship? in central Lancashire? I think to
3: characterise Burnley as a sinking ship is a little bit unfair, even if most people have picked them to go down this season. Yes, yes. Um, because they're kind of unique in the sense of all these t- clubs that we're talking about at the lower end of the table. They are a very sensible club. Things have run very well there. And they got relegated. They, not in make, they were one of
2: the most profitable clubs in world football last that, season. That
3: may well be the case. I because had they, they had very time. little
2: outgoings and made all that... But just stinking premier league money course, basically yeah. yeah so i think they made uh, i think it was something like 40 million operating profit or something okay. ludicrous like that which is virtually unprecedented for football clubs because they are money pits uh so they're well run they have money but you don't expect them to go out and spend it to replace andre gray well, I mean,
3: Andre Gray took a lot of people by surprise, I think, that move. And we'll see how, what Deitch's strategy
2: is to, to cope with that. But S- Sign a lot of Irish players, it seems. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, at <laughs> the, the <laughs> moment. half
1: the, international, the Irish <laughs> international level. Well, well the
2: thing with Deitch, uh, and it's one of the, the fears that potential employers of him mm-hmm. have had, is that he does look at a very narrow sphere of player mm. to sign, and that they just happen to be the most expensive, usually. Yeah. Uh, do you think, you know, if, if you compare, like, if he had taken the, if he had ended up getting the Palace job, not that he was offered it, would they be signing players like Yaro Riedervold from Ajax? John Walters. <laughs> yeah, you would be getting John Walters instead. Yeah. <laughs> However, John Walters, by the way, one of the cheapest and probably most valued signings of the summer. And then, no, no he, uh, he's, an ex- he's an excellent player, John Walters. He's great, actually, for, great yeah. for your team, you know. Yeah, yeah. He is that sort of established Premier League player that we were talking about. Not mm-hmm. that Brighton would, would go for Johnny Walters, but... I think he could be good for Burnley, but he's not going to replace an 18 million pound striker like Andre Gray.
0: No, I agree. I mean, Andre Gray is a completely different player. Um, Walters is a lot more physical presence. With him and Vokes up front, I mean, you don't want a lightweight centre back against that pair. But yeah, taking away Andre Gray, it's that extra bit of pace, that extra bit of zip, which they don't have at that front line anymore. I don't know if that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I I share your same fear. The listener question from uh, Michael, which is at ULA56. What in the name of Holy, uh, I can't say that word on air. What in the name of Holy blank is Burnley's strategy this summer? Critch. Strategy. I think the
3: strategy, what it needs to be, is to improve away from home. I think we all saw how impressive they were at home last season. Uh, I think I'm right in saying they either took one point less or one point more than Manchester United did at home at Old Trafford. So That's a, a low bar. <laughs> well, it speaks to both clubs. It's more of an indictment on Manchester United, if anything. But um, the first away win came at Palace in late April. So yeah, in yeah. order to... They need to replicate that home form, and Dyche will have prioritised that, but they also really need to improve away from home and on the road. Otherwise, what, all, our previ- all, all our predictions are going to come to fruition. I
2: feel. Chelsea... Are up next. I guess uh, this is one for you, Miguel. You saw a hell of a lot of the champions last year. Uh, the big thing, though, is the lack of transfers uh, this summer. I mean, I don't think anyone thought that they'd be this quiet in the transfer market. And least of all, Antonio Conte. Where are the
1: players? Well, it's made Antonio Conte quite loud in public about yes about the transfers. Um, almost a bigger concern for Chelsea is cuz I think they they actually have brought in some deep from good signings so far but it's the fact that it, it does seem so odd that they've let just so many players go without first replacing them and have left themselves host- hostage to fortune a bit like when we were in a, we we're at Wembley on Sunday in the mix zone afterwards we were just talked to Gary Cahill about this and he goes he said like the players were actually discussing the back of the program because like the, the squad list was so short and he said that you know wow. we, we, like i mean for a player to admit that as well No, it was it was kind of joking but it does reflect something um, and that, that is the worry, I suppose, because I think there's, there's a few. There's three big questions with Chelsea, I suppose. First of all, um, how now, now teams will, will know their system better, so how they respond to that. Secondly, it comes down to the signings, given they played the Champions League um, as well. Can, can they get the uh, can they sustain the same sort of form out of so few players? I mean, surely they they need backup. And related to that, do they have the same number of goals? I mean, I think Alvaro Morada is a very good player, but. Is he as prolific as, as Costa? Well, yeah. Diego
2: Costa has not left
1: yet. No? Yeah. So well, there is
2: still the remote chance.
1: And I ha- very remote. I, And I suppose, as, as, as we say all this, and we have all these worries for Chelsea, if you go back exactly 12 months ago, there were problems with Costa and Conte hadn't got any of the signings he wanted. Even yeah. by the end of the window, he still get the, he still didn't get any of the sign any of the 1st choice signings he wanted. And he arrived late as well, yeah. after the Euros. And yeah, but, but I suppose the, the, the thing with Conte is is that he is arguably the best hands-on coach in the league at the moment. So once the, once the transfer window is over, and he has a situation if he doesn't walk away, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, once he gets that team and works them, I think he can still have a huge effect. I think people are maybe underestimating that.
2: While you're and talking about that, by the way, the listener question from Rufus, whose username proudly proclaims himself Rufus number one, uh, possibly Rufus no one, uh, if you are being strict about it. He asks how close is Conte to walking away from Chelsea, and you say
1: not. Not that
2: close, but he is very frustrated. With trying he's to annoyed. This. He wants players. Yeah. Um, I get it. He's probably, you know, he, he's trying to, Maximise a strong leverage position, which is I've just won you the bloody Mm. Premier League, give me some players. They've got a Champions League campaign. I I understand why he is frustrated. Unfortunately, uh, I don't think he's going to get an abundance
1: of players before the window. Although, if he did get three, I would change my prediction though and have Chelsea to win it. So, three in the next three weeks. Yeah. Mm. Um, Well, Van Dyke, I mean, we'll come to Van Dyke later, I suppose, but given it's now looking looking unlikely that Liverpool are going to push him on. Uh, well, and I Liverpool step up their interest, but they're in a very, during a very tricky situation there. Uh, Chelsea could emerge. I think uh, the, the
2: interesting thing there is you'd only need two or three. We said they need depth, and they do mm. need depth. But Conte has made more of an emphasis on quality. Yeah. And it's if they get just two or three players who are of a good enough quality, he can coach them into that team and uh, make them even better. So Chelsea, we think uh, no one tipped them for the title in our predictions, but everyone thinks they're going to be in the Champions League. Is that fair?
1: Win the Champions League? The Champions no, League. no, they're going to be in the
2: Champions League. They're not going to. Well, they might win it. Yeah, they're they definitely going to be in the Champions League.
1: No, top four. Oh, right. you know I, oh, oh I see, right, okay. Right. <laughs> you knew uh, what I meant.
2: Potent.
3: Well, uh, You know. Yeah. i got the second. You've got them
2: second, yeah. I'm second. Uh, I think I had fourth. Fourth?
3: I think I was between second and third, and I think I went with third.
2: And Conte's European now, so will he make a dent in Europe, do you think?
1: It comes back to the depth, I think. They've got a thin squad. Yeah, and I've doubts about. I mean, I, I used to, for the last few years, I've been arguing that Eng- England's struggles in Premier uh, in Europe have been kind of down to you know, the, the demands of the Premier League and all, all the rest of it. But I do have a few doubts about, g- g- given given how poor the performance has been now for such an extended time, I, I do slightly. And also, Conte himself, he doesn't have a brilliant record in Europe. I mean, he just has that one Europa League campaign at Juventus, basically.
2: So that's one title contender out of the way. Let's get on to the next one the Crystal Palace, next up in the alphabet. How do we think they're going to do this season? It's uh, a new era. No Sam. Uh, Big Sam obviously walking out in uh, surprising fashion. And not least to the club uh, just days after the season. What do you think, Mark Critchley, is going to happen at Selhurst Park? I
3: think Palace are probably the biggest unknown quantity really going into this season. because uh, so much, much Biggest so of much anyone changed. in the Premier League. Probably so, because so much has changed uh, over the last few months. And in the board, we've got a manager who has a mixed track
2: record, let's say.
3: Ajax, obviously, uh, won the air division there. Some people will say that's not too hard, but, you know, it's like, look,
2: he won it, they hadn't won it for years before he arrived, and they haven't won it since he's left as well. As I was just about to say, uh, yes. But but Inter Milan, yeah, Inter Milan, not so good.
3: Inter Milan, not so good, but then Inter Milan is a club that is an absolute, like, crater uh, wreck behind the scenes. So, you know, we, we, like I say, we don't really know what to expect from him. It's been intriguing to see the moves that he's made. I think they're not going to struggle as much as they did last season, but I'm not expecting great things either. I think a lower mid-table finish.
2: Well, Jack, I was talking to you earlier. um, One of the most underrated things, uh, De Boer's changed with this 3-4-3 that he seems very keen on playing. Uh, He wants to have possession. He wants to have a lot of the ball. So it's virtually the complete opposite of Sam Allardyce. Uh, One, you know, bearing in mind that the players have got to completely change everything, how is that going to work out? And two, is the sellhouse uh, the Selhurst Park pitch going to be good enough for them to just be passing it around from defence like that?
0: Yeah, for the for the ground stuff, they probably had a completely different criteria than they did last season.
2: Yeah, big <laughs> divots galore last <laughs> season. <laughs> well, it's almost like the the classic thing uh, John Beck at Cambridge, uh, which is probably way before your time, uh, when they had the ball longer and the uh, the grass longer in the corners, so they could play the long ball into the corners and it would slow up, and then you know the guy <laughs> chases it down and, and, and swings across in. But you think, you think this is going to work out? It's a whole new world, really. Uh, I agree with Critch. I think they're probably the most unpredictable team
0: in the league. Um, for that, as you can say, the probably eleven teams that are fighting against relegation, they could finish anywhere
2: between bottom of the pile and top of that pile. Yeah, um, they've, they've got
1: Benteke though, fifteen goals. Anywhere so,
2: from ninth yeah. to twentieth. Oh, Welford Zaha, at the end of last season, was yeah. so, he was so yeah. good. I mean, it, he could be top two or three wingers in the league this season you know I I go back to that game against Chelsea Mm -hmm. when they knocked them off at Stamford Bridge and it was Hazard against Zaha and I, I said going into it and I wasn't joking these are the two best wingers in the league at the moment and Hazard was nowhere and Zaha was absolutely outstanding again I think he'll be good. Ruben Loftus-Cheek has looked good in pre-season. Uh, I think he's another guy, like Ake, who needs a chance, needs to play Premier League football every week. Is he
3: going to get? Is he gonna get I think
2: he's going to get a lot of, of game time. Uh, the 3-4-3, they need energetic midfielders. Luka Milivojevic who was so good at the end of last season in the holding role, has been playing as a centre-back in the back three. Uh, Jason Punchon, the new club captain, I think he'll play a lot. He's one of the most underrated players, I think, in the league. Uh, but then who's alongside him? Yoan Kabay. there's still interest from Marseille. Has he got the legs to do the up and down? Uh, I'm not sure he has. In, in the 3-4-3, three, three, you need someone energetic. You know, as we saw with Chelsea and Kante, uh, I'm not sure Matic fit, fit that role so well. And mm-hmm. Kabai is a guy who prefers to perhaps to be a little more static than energetic. So I think Loftus-Cheek could get a lot of game time. Uh, they got him on loan. They've also got Timothy fossum Menser on loan, which uh, pertains to the reader's question from James, which is at JTH readers or... At uh, Jay Threaders, I suppose, could be the alternative. As refreshing as it is with younger players, how risky is it for Palace to play inexperienced Timothy fosu and Yaro Riedervald in the new look back three? Jack,
0: uh,
2: it's it's a big risk,
0: especially if you want to be playing out from the back on a pitch like that. Yes, I mean one bit of nerves, one foot higher than it should be, and that ball's running under you, yes, like, running past you, and. You know Hazard's running through and scoring, right. uh, like Timothy Fossimansa, You see him at United. He loves a tackle.
2: He's a big challenger, and I think he knows. Does he know De Boer from Ajax? Is yeah. that right? Like they, I think was he at the Ajax yeah. academy system. So you'd hope that uh, they know him somehow. Also, um, Andros Townsend at right wing back. What do we think about that? <laughs> uh, Andros Townsend is like. One of the most frustrating players. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know you
3: um, And as a right wing back, I don't know if he's even got the positional distance to play right wing. So
2: no, I not... Actually, I forgot to mention the biggest issue for Palace is the goalkeeping situation. Uh, Wayne Hennessy probably going to start the season in goal. <laughs> Possibly the worst keeper in the league last season. So, uh, anyway, we'll move on. Everton and next. Uh, the listener question pertains to probably the biggest story to do with Everton this summer it's from Alex Bell a uh, friend of independent football how long will it take Koeman to realise Rooney is not good enough in any position Miguel uh,
1: I think by November we're going to see fam- familiar facial expressions from Rooney from, uh, from his last two years at United where he's kind of just sitting on the bench and, uh, <laughs> and basically the kind of realisation that yeah he's, uh, he's not what he was
2: he's, in, he's that you know the Europa League trip to Tromsø yeah, he gets the start,
1: but you think. Well, also, like, actually, have, they've signed some very exciting attackers, and then in the middle of this kind of Rooney, who while there's a whole emotional dimension there, and I think, th- and to be fair to him, uh, I think he's been working, he probably been working very hard. He, he obviously feels he has something to prove again, um, but have, I like, haven't, haven't seen him so much for the last two seasons. It's it's difficult to see where the uh, where the upkeep will come so from. At the time of recording, they have not signed Gilfie Sigurdsson yet. Mm. They're
2: trying their hardest. If they sign Gilfie Sigurdsson. Davy Clausen, Wayne Rooney,
1: Sandro. And Sandro is a really exciting prospect, I think. Uh, I actually, I am a little bit baffled as to the why they want Sigurdsson quite so much. Because Sig- Sigurdsson, I think Jack was, Pip Brook was in the last podcast. But if you sign Sigurdsson, just the way he plays, you, the, almost the whole attack needs to revolve around him. Uh, and, I, and, just, but, and I don't think he's quite even though he has a lot of qualities I don't think he's quite fluid enough for that and they look more like a squad built to have interchangeable pieces yeah they, exactly they, they've yeah. got a, a decent
2: amount of depth for a club in their position uh, they're probably you'd say Critch the best place to challenge for kind of the, the top six they're the best the they're, they're the basically. next team. Yeah, yeah they're the seventh best mm-hmm. team they spent how much 100 200 million pounds to go from being the seventh best team in England to being the seventh best team in England what do you think of their summer what do I think of this summer? I think the main issue is, and we're all forgetting it, there's a lot of
3: optimism around Everton, but we're forgetting that they've sold Romelu Lukaku, who was responsible mm-hmm. for just about 40% yeah, of I their goals. Of goals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you look again, who's, who was second in their scoring charts? It's Ross Barkley, and he's 100% going to leave Everton, according to Ronald Coleman. So the question is whether all, these, all this attacking talent that they brought in can fill the void. Um, at the moment, I'm yet to be convinced because I'm yet to
1: see a fluent strategy in Coleman's thinking. This is the issue, actually, with I suppose, the modern Premier League. Everton have spent a fortune, and I think they actually they have significantly improved the overall quality of their squad. Mm. But yet, it still doesn't—it still doesn't feel enough to actually take them up to the real level they want to, which is challenging for the Champions League. Now, the one hope for them, I think, actually, is if United struggle again, and actually. I, w- I mean, I know it was Real Madrid, but I ended up being really disappointed with United on Tuesday. They started; I think they started the game a little slicker attack, but then it gradually faded away. Uh, and I don't think it's completely out of bounds that they could struggle in the league again. But I what will come to that. But anyway, I think that's Everton's best hope, finishing sixth. But overall, I think my, my concern is that they, um, they 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 just haven't. Qu- they've signed very good players that have made them significantly better, but still not good enough.
2: Yeah, I, I, I personally think. If they manage to get themselves knocked out the Europa League early somehow, like pre group stage, and they've only got the Premier League to worry about, I think they could break the top six. But then they could also they, they, they could p- pick p- off Arsenal or someone. Perhaps mm. they
1: could arguably, uh, arguably also be thinking about doing it, or they should be thinking about doing what United did last season, looking yeah, to no, prioritising the Europa they, League. They, I mean, it's a good go one squad. Way or other.
2: The other thing I'd say is they are one of the few teams that have got a decent amount of young kids coming through. In terms of if they've got yeah. Calvert Lewin, yeah, yeah, who could true. make a leap this season. They've got. Um, Mason Holgate.
0: I, I think that's where Rooney's influence will come in more.
2: Is yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the field. Yeah. I I mean, yeah. I mean, what a guy to have around who's yeah. been there and done it. As long as his attitude is right, which, you know, from what I understand, he's, he's not been the sort of guy, even at United when it was going down, it, it's not like he was torpedoing the whole shot. Well, when players come in to England, that's always they say. Wayne they say Rooney, Rooney is Rooney, Rooney, Rooney. a good role model. So that's good to see. Uh, one club that's going to need uh, some good role models. Everyone tipped them to go down in our Premier League predictions. That's Huddersfield, newly promoted Huddersfield. Does anyone have any thoughts on Huddersfield, David Wagner, and uh, that entire show up in Yorkshire?
3: I think uh, the problem for Huddersfield is that last season, they were, at the start of the season, they were a mid-table championship side, and they greatly over-exceeded expectations. Yes. So how they then make another big step up into the Premier League that's the big question and that's why most people are ranking them bottom the thing they've got in their favour is Wagner and the system that he implemented there last season which helped them achieve and get into the playoffs and achieve promotion Um, is it going to be enough this time around I'm not so certain but do I think they're necessarily going to come bottom maybe not I think they could shock a few people I think they could take it down to the wire but yeah
1: it's, it's a question of resources and it's a question of whether they really have enough to challenge. The, the one thing that strikes me with Wagner as well, having gone to the playoff final, I think the, the impression that uh, we and him will be enjoying some banter yeah, uh, he he he, 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 um, he he doesn't fit this this uh, compared to the, the the style of German player and coach I like grew because He's dour and serious. Like he's part of this new breed of this this, this wackiness. And, and yet, it, it does almost <laughs> seem to infuse the football as well. Because uh, I suppose given his education, knowing Klopp and all that, and we'll probably hear a lot of that when they eventually play each other again. Yeah. But yet, there there is a kind of. Uh, there's a certain joy to the way he plays as well, like the way his teams play. Well,
2: the players love him. Right? Yeah, you exactly. See, like, that's the sort of team where you see that the players would run through the metaphorical wall for him. Uh, it'd be interesting to see, obviously, based on his success, how Daniel Farker mm-hmm. does at Norwich this season. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm sure you're very wired in on East Anglian football. Uh, Huddersfield, their big question from the readers, Elliot Hutchins, at Elliot Hutchins, how do you think... Aaron Moy will get on this season. Uh, I was going to ask you this, Miguel, but uh, yeah, you said he had a good game in the, in the playoff final. Yep. The, the interesting thing for me on, on him is was a club record signing at the time until they broke that club record again by signing Montpellier striker Steve Mounier this summer for about £12 million, um, who I'm led to believe is good, but it doesn't always work out in a team where you're not getting lots of chances mm-hmm. and you're an expensive striker. Aaron Moy, uh, Australian midfielder, Manchester City bought Melbourne City, the club, for something like £3 million. And with that, they got all the players. Moy transferred to Manchester City, then went on loan to Huddersfield. He's now They've now sold this player for 7 £8 million. 8 million, dollars, yeah. So they've over-doubled the investment in the entire club. Club networks, this whole new way of going, do you think that we're going to see this growing ever more? Do you think even clubs like Huddersfield like smaller premier league clubs might end up w- when they're in some sort of like club network where they own a couple of other clubs or perhaps you know imagine if the owners of like a Juventus or a Sevilla decided that they wanted a smaller premier league club
1: to own um it's almost, I think it's almost worth devoting an entire podcast to this subject because I think it's very interesting the whole landscape of Eurof- European football and I suppose if we've already given what Red Bull have been trying to do there's already been some complications complications there i think it's quite healthy that UEFA Disallow clubs uh, who are owned by the same enterprise owner, whatever you want to call it, 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 it they, 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 they don't allow more than one club from that from that franchise into European football every season because of potential conflict for interest, uh, a conflict of interest. But um, I think it's been quite uh, it, it, it's, it's been really, it's been exclusive to a few a, a few clubs lately. I think it is something that could grow, particularly given just the nature of the game and. and with, with the move from a lot of clubs to kind going to almost g- go their own way in terms of broadcasting deals, the, ex- the explosion in that regard. And yeah, I, I think it's something we could see more of. I, I'm not necessarily sure it's all that healthy thing, but then I suppose in, in terms of kind of the, the finance certain areas of the game, it could help. No, I, I think, I think it, you're right. It probably deserves a lot more mm. time than
2: we have here. Uh, we've kind of dwelt a little bit on the early part of the alphabet, but we're already at halfway almost with, with Leicester, Jack. The listener question probably sums us all up Uh, Can Leicester establish themselves uh, as a top half team with with Shakespeare in charge to be or not to be? (laughs) Thank you. Very good. (laughs) Uh, It's a very strange question for a
0: club that has just won the Premier League two years ago. Um, But, you know, last season started as the world's biggest come down. And I think under Shakespeare now, they've almost, they've hit where they would have been had they not won the Premier League. They're... You know they're they're in that group that we mentioned
2: before that eleven. Those but they 11 have a teams. financial boost, a reputational they boost. Do. Uh, last season was wild. In many ways, it would have been a better story if they'd got relegated immediately after winning the title, just because it would have been <laughs> the crazy ups and downs of football. But uh, their Champions League campaign was was fascinating. That was brilliant. Uh, I just do. Do you think? I mean, Shakespeare did turn them round. I mean, ran, when Ranieri went, there was a lot of. Fawning, I guess, uh, and, and he deserves it because what he did was incredible. But then it, it did foil apart a lot, and, it, and the, the squad obviously wanted him out. Shakespeare did improve their results significantly. This is his first full season; he's got a lot to prove, Critch
3: Definitely, and um, I think the issue is that when he came in and there was this big turnaround in form, a lot of that would have been to do a, a bloodletting in the sense, you know, a bit of momentum. The dressing room had lost its way under Ranieri and now they rally together again, and you saw that kind of spirit that led them to the title the year before. Um, For that to be sustained over another season, um, when there's been a break in between, is a different question entirely. And now we're really gonna see whether Craig
2: Shakespeare uh, is a Premier League manager. Uh, One uh, one point I wanna make on Leicester, we were talking earlier about uh, when we keep players against their, Mm -hmm. you keep players perhaps against their will, and you just say, right, we're just gonna lose out on this money. If they'd sold Riyad Mahrez a year ago, you're talking 50 million pounds, player of the year. They're struggling to get 25 million out of Roma at the moment, and no one else is is in the market. So it doesn't always work out. It's just interesting for me to see if he gets out on the field for them, if they're going to try and make that work or not. So next we have Liverpool. Our <laughs> only in our Premier League predictions, only one person had them to finish in the top four. That is Liverpool-based Mark Critchley. So Critch, they brought in Mohamed Salah. Mm-hmm. They've kept... Uh, Sadio Mane is going to be back from injury, who was excellent last season. they got Firmino. Yes. You know, what about the defence? What about the defence? Well, the interesting thing about the defence
3: is that for long periods of last season, it, it was actually OK. I mean, the problem with Liverpool is they concede a low amount of very good chances. So, say, they perhaps like, concede three shots in a game. Two of those are very good. But that, it's a team they'll like all be a in the six yard team, box. They'll all be in the six yard yeah, box. Yeah, yeah. They have high quality. And that was, their, that was their downfall, basically, last season. Is this you veering into expected goals uh, territory? Perhaps, maybe. <laughs> 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 I'm not admitting to it yet, but yes. Um, so, yeah, that is their issue. And if Klopp can fix that, then I think the defence will be sound. Uh, people still have a lot of questions about Mignolet, but especially at the second half of last season, he was actually very good and the comp- competition that he got off Loris Carrius really helped bring him on. So I don't see, if, as long as they can kind of fix that problem with the high-quality chances being conceded, I don't really see the defensive issues existing as such, although it's definitely the weakest area of their team. If they sign Virgil van Dijk and Naby Keiter, are they title contenders? Well, they're not going to sign Keiter, um, but if they do sign van Dijk, they will be title contents. You think they'll be title contenders with, with Van Dijk? Are. Is that big for them? I think they are anyway. Put it this way. Take the top six, okay? Like I said before, Arsenal, I think, are the sixth best team. I think City are, by some distance, the best team. And then those four in the middle, there's a lot of questions around all of them at the minute. Um, Liverpool, one of the definite things we know about them is that they have an excellent
2: attack. That could be potentially push them into a title challenge. They got a ferociously fast attack. the listener question from Joachim Christiansen which is at Jock uh you can try and work out how to spell that. How will Liverpool break teams down that defend deep? So when they're at Turf Moor, yeah. How are they they lost last season. Course, yeah, yeah. But that's why I bring it up. Okay. How are they going to pick these teams <laughs> off? How are they going to do
3: it?
1: Um yeah, I think Klopp needs to solve this. They, they struggled struggle more of that as well last season with Div Mane. And particularly when he was injured. Well, I mean, African but Manet and, yeah. and Salah,
2: most obviously, on the counter-attack, are going to be massive. Salah is one of the best but, counter-attack but, players but I've ever But even in terms seen. of
1: sort of, pay, like, when you're playing a deep team, so, that sudden burst of pace in behind. To be well. able to beat a man,
2: yeah. a game-breaking sort of, mm. sort of guy, but Coutinho now staying, Jack.
0: It was when uh, Klopp played Coutinho in centre midfield in a deep-lying role against West Ham last season. And he was fantastic. It was one of the best games he'd played that season, and he tore West Ham apart. He's the sort
2: of guy you need to pick the lock, basically. You know, he's the guy who, out of their midfielders, he can pick a pass that's going to get between. Exactly. Uh, The other guy, actually, I just want to mention, Dominic Solanke. Do we think he can step up and be a a first-team player? I think he's had an impressive pre-season. I would be hesitant just yet because he hasn't got the record
3: behind him, even at, like, Vitesse Arnhem. We didn't see you think he's still behind
2: Origi in the pecking order?
3: I think I think Origi's in trouble with Solanke there. I think Origi's position in the pecking order is threatened, definitely. But for the moment, I would say Solanke's still just a little bit behind if coming up to a par. And we'll see, especially in like League Cup games and in the Champions League maybe as well, uh, and the games, Premier League games in between Champions League weeks, just how, uh,
2: how much Solanke can offer. So we move from uh, Liverpool, who only one of us had in the top four, to Manchester City, who only one out of the 10 people in our Premier League predictions didn't have for the Premier League title. So they are a huge consensus pick. The only person that didn't pick them for the title is in this room. Uh, Jack, talk to me. Yeah. um, I'm not convinced he can keep all those stars happy.
0: I'm not convinced that he knows his best 11. I mean... When, uh, well, but I think that's one of Guardiola's strengths. Because he, he alternates so much. But if you're, if you're a player and you don't know if you're playing every week, you don't get into that sort of, into the groove as you like. Well, uh, that's a modern game. Like the, the
1: The days of best 11s are gone. Like, it's it's all about a, a, a squad that can weather changes to compete across multiple fronts. And I, I think City have that now, particularly, like, an attack. I mean... <laughs> you say that, but then last season, Chelsea won the league and they had a very settled starting lineup and The most settled.
3: Yeah, Guardiola was employing the same rotation policy. So...
1: If it didn't work, then what's to say? Well, I mean, that was a, that season. was a Chelsea without Jean, But I think I mean when you're we're competing on multiple fronts, which five of the six, in fact, true. Well, yeah. we, we've we've got all six now in Europe. Yeah. That's the first time that's well, that's happened was since 2014. Actually, in 2014, Liverpool weren't in Europe either. Mm. So it's kind of a more level play. You, you, no team will be able to do that now. Um, and I think City just by the way Guardiola play, it's, it's a best for kind of. Uh, he's best suited to a rotation of attackers I mean so because this is all relevant to
2: uh, the listener question from Mark Jeffries the Daily Mirror's showbiz editor as it happens at Mirror Jeffers how does Pep keep all of our players happy and on form Jack you're saying you can't Uh, Miguel you're saying that's normal Critch you're up there
3: I don't know. Maybe he plays Sergio Aguero at left wing back or something. And, uh, you know, they will get minutes that way. No. Do but, you
2: think Aguero uh, will still be the starting centre forward at the end of the season? Like the first choice? The I starting
3: centre forward. At the minute, it looks like he's going to try and play both him and Jesus at the same time. But I think what you saw uh, upon Jesus' arrival in January was that he's definitely one of Guardiola's favourites. Now, whereas there's nobody really in the outfield, apart from Kevin De Bruyne, that I would say is kind of nailed on to even start at Brighton this weekend.
0: Um, I'd say they've only got two certain starters. Who are they? Uh, Edison and De Bruyne. De
3: Bruyne, yeah, yeah. So De Bruyne, yeah, he's the only one really there. Um, I think the they could throw. do. I think
2: they could do with another centre back. They uh, definitely could. Yeah. Yeah. It's just John Stones. Uh, I think he was another guy who had a needs a big second season because he's not necessarily established himself yet. He, he still makes the odd mistake. I know that's part of how Guardiola wants him to play. Uh, Vincent Company hopefully will be back fit again this season. Um, Otamendi is the other. Yeah, I mean, Otamendi was great at Valencia, but it's a completely different style of, of, of play now. The new fullbacks. Are interesting, Miguel. I think you've talked about this before. Why city's fullbacks are interesting because they're not the sort of guys like Lam who are intelligent yeah. and maybe could like dart into central midfield. These are very much out and out guys who are going to yeah, hug it, the touchline.
1: Yeah, it's not like Guardiola hasn't signed them to be that type of defender, that type of fullback. That basically, will can also slot into defensive in midfield. We just think he, he tried a fair bit last season. This feels like he's really going, you know, one hundred percent for so pace. Do
2: you think he's given up on on that, or it's just that? He's got so many great central creators in this team that he just wants people who yeah. are going to stay wide. And to
1: stretch, to stretch, to stretch. Also, there was one thing about somewhere, oh, the city has spent 200 million on defenders. When, Okay, yeah, nominally they have, but with the way Guardiola works and the way these players play means they're not really defenders. Yeah. I mean, they're they're, 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 they're crucial to they help. They are the Agu- wide players, yeah. essentially, because yeah, they're not exactly. going to play with wingers. Yeah, completely. Of course. Um, but yeah, I, I think... In that sense, well, it's going to be an extremely fast. Some of those games between the top six this season are going to be at a relentless pace. I mean, the pace of Liverpool, I mean, two of the fastest games I saw last season were Chelsea, particularly the Chelsea Spurs at Stamford Bridge. Yeah. Maybe not so much the second one, but the, that the first game. And also, I think the best game was last season was Chelsea City at uh, the Etihad. So some of these games are going to be blinding. Uh, yeah, I
2: think City and Liverpool could have two, I mean, they should have the two best attacks in the league from what we've seen so far. Uh, going across Manchester Manchester United uh, What can you say? About Man United they've had a, a huge summer obviously in the transfer market Romulo Lukaku's arrived uh, Nemanja Matic has arrived which seems expensive But there is some pe- there's some justification to say it's the most important sign is it could unleash their record deal uh, Paul Pogba, you know, it could set him free in the midfield. What do you think rich? I think this is one of those things in
3: football that we we kind of go two plus two and we might equal five on it. Um, I, I want to see, I would love to see Pogba be liberated um, and it would make sense for match alongside him, but I, th- I think the jury's going to be out on it for a while. Um, if you look at United last season, a lot of it was kind of, a lot of it came through Pogba um, and I expect that again, but he needs to start having a real explicit impact on games in order to deflect some of the
2: criticism that he attracts. Um, yeah, so. I don't know how much you remember of Euro 2016, but um, when you go to tournaments, it all just blurs yeah. into one. Uh, <laughs> one of the big, one of the big storylines with France, I, I covered a couple of their games, yeah. was, was that Paul Pogba can basically only play in that one position, which is on the left of a midfield three, mm-hmm. the left well, point of the of the triangle.
1: I wouldn't say that he can only play
2: that. It's that he, he needs. That's a, where he's his best. Yeah, perhaps. he needs. He
1: needs a very specific position to really bring out his many, many technical quality. I think like he's obviously got extreme talent. And the quality of some of his deliveries, I think, especially some of his crosses. I mean, they're the best mm-hmm. i have seen since Beckham. Um, so, so do you think that signing Matic
2: will? Liberate him and, and make, allow him to play in that exact role where he
1: plays best. You, you would, you would hope so if, uh, for United. Take um, and again, I don't. You don't want to read off to uh, read off one game too much, but uh, I still felt he was a little bit kind of shapeless in the uh, shapeless without giving the benefits of, of of freedom in the game against Real Madrid. But then again, that's Super Cup against Real Madrid. It's, well, it's both against Real Madrid and an like exhibition match. Um, but I do know that Mourinho has. Big big plans for Pogba this season. He expects him to go up a level. He wants 15 goals. From thinks he can get them, um, and he thinks he's going to be crucial to cut out to that attack, which was obviously at times a little bit meat last season from United. All uh, right, they had they had some of those games where they created an abundance of chances against teams that would sit back against them. But then in other games, when they uh, like say, you know, the, the City away game, where just think they, they were so restrained. I think maybe he'd be better released in matches like that. Um, but I I do actually think this is. Obviously, Pogba doing that is so essential to what United do. But I think there's a, a bigger issue for United, which just comes down to the way Mourinho plays in the modern game. And the, I think are are really fair questions about um, whether he's Mourinho's best, or whether a whether he's still at his best, and even and b whether his best is still the most conducive to succeeding in the modern game. Because, and again, we we, we just mentioned the. Uh, the quality and the speed of some of the matches between the top six last season, yet it was usually quite conspicuous that bar maybe United's home game against Chelsea, United were U- United's matches against the rest of the top six were, they, they stood out because a lot of them were so dull. Mm.
2: Jack Austin, Pride of Wales. Do you think there is going to be an issue with, with Jose Mourinho if they have a bad start after having to, uh, they failed to secure players like Ivan Perisic who Mourinho has come out and said that, yeah, we tried to sign him, we wanted him. He wanted a hard-working wide midfielder. It doesn't look like they're going to get one. If they don't have a good start, are we going to see the old Jose coming out?
0: I think f- it, the fact they didn't get Perisic means that Jesse Lingard's going to get a lot more minutes. Which is that a bad thing? It's not as good
1: as Perisic playing. I don't think. Do, there's a bit. This, this is what I'm getting at in terms of kind of how Mourinho plays. Ultimately, he picks so many players, and particularly attackers. Based on their defensive contribution rather than contribution. I mean, Martial. All right, he's he can be erratic, he can be inconsistent. But I think that that's kind of a consequence of you to an extent. But also, though, of the position he's put in, um, uh, he should be a player. I think that, that that thriving and kind of a little bit like Pogba, maybe just the team built towards a way that you could release his best. But yet, because Mourinho places plays such a defensive priority in that role, it means he he won't, he won't appear too much, and it and it. I think Mourinho's instinct in so many situations is basically to protect first. And it was also where I think I old piece in this after Tuesday's game where if things aren't going well for United, rather than try and switch things up in terms of what they can do creatively, try and fell and put them under pressure aerially. It relates
2: to a listener question that we've got from Thomas Shanahan uh, at Clifford0584. How can Jose get MUFC playing like a typical Jose Mourinho team? i.e. defensively compact, high energy and quick and clinical on the counter. What what are the the key points to getting them playing it because they were a bit just they were a bit stodgy last season yeah. especially at home where they drew a lot of games.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um uh, to be fair, the one thing Mourinho has done well in this window, I think what he's always done well is uh, he's identified specific areas in the team that he needs to fix, signs those players forward and then I think he's always been very good at particularly attack but in, get in getting players that he can just trust you I mean because what we've recently heard throughout the last few years of Mourinho's career in contrast to managers like Pochettino like Conte is that his approach to attacking is very laissez-faire and that's why he always he usually signs strikers who are of a certain age and a certain level of experience because he trusts them to do to, to know what to do to do it themselves. yeah basically. to an extent I mean I, I remember like yeah um his his attacking coaching is much more basic in that regard where, whereas his his defensive coaching is much more it's much more rigorous much more well planned um but I just I still don't think he has the profile of that for for united next up is
2: newcastle united where we have probably the most specific listener question of the day. So we're going to lead off with that. Christopher at UConn83 asks, has Benitez abandoned the Gerard slash Hamzik number 10 type player slash role for a more dynamic player? I can only assume he means midfield dynamo John Joe Shelby, Mark. I thought he might mean Ayosee Perez. Uh, Ayosee yeah, Perez, I hear you. What do you but think of the Newcastle other. team? What do you think of their chances this
3: season? I think the advantage that Newcastle have is that... Uh, they were the most expensive squad in the championship and you know if they they already look like a mid-table premier league
2: team. Uh, do you think so? I was looking through their squad. I mean we, we were reading I was reading that to you Jack okay. fact, yesterday. Paul Dummett, Kieran Clark, Rob I,
1: Elliott.
0: I, I, I say they sound more like a mid-table championship team Yeah. Than yeah. A <laughs> premier League team. <laughs> well,
2: but we know how
1: annoyed Rafa is with the lack
2: of signings yeah. Miguel.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, Newcastle's greatest concern ahead of the new season because actually I, beyond that I wouldn't be too concerned with not necessarily the quality squad but I think for all that his personality provokes a certain amount of kind of you know parody and you know he people take the mickey a little bit and the facts and all that one fact is that Rafa remains a very good manager he's a brilliant coach yeah um, and I think I, I, I mean the, the best endorsement that he, could have, he could have had is that 2012-13 um, Alex Ferguson I mean, you know they weren't exactly the best friends but I remember he turned around towards the end of that season and he goes He's done a very good job at Chelsea. You can't deny that. And and even though that's one of his jobs where people still debate, oh, you know, how how good it was. But I think he's he's very... He's better than a safe pair of hands. But I think he will get that Newcastle squad above their level. I don't really have too many concerns about them going back down. Although, yeah, I mean, as is Rafa's way, no matter how he's doing, he's (laughs) always had transfer issues. Although I think in this case, they're more justified than ever. In relation to the question, I think it's more related to the fact that he basically... Doesn't have a player of Gerard or Hamishuk's quality.
2: Yeah, and the thing with with Rafa, you, which you kind of alluded to, is uh, I was talking to someone very close to him, and, and they said the problem with Rafa is as soon as he doesn't get what he wants, mm. he assumes that it is something against him. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not someone's inability to do something. It's it's a campaign against him, or it's like a, it's a deliberate, conscious act to uh, spite yeah. him, and which uh, is a, a curious mentality.
1: Yeah. And then there's almost kind of the, it becomes about this kind of public saving a face. Yes. Which, I mean, and you do wonder where sometimes you just let it go, but evidently can't. Uh, yeah. And
2: it's just a concern for Newcastle that they start in the season with internal conflict already. Mike Ashley and, and Mike Ashley obviously was on the other side of mm-hmm. uh, to the fans. But Rafa is, is on the fan side. Rafa knows he's got the fans on side. So it's just something to watch up there. I think. You're right. He is worth probably more points to his team than any other coach in the Premier League this season. Is mm. that fair to say? Like yeah. He could probably mm. earn them ten points above what their squad. As worth. in, as I said there's the greatest disparity between the manager's quality and the squad's quality. That is uh, a fair way of saying it, and that's why you have your job. Uh, <laughs> next up are Southampton. Uh, again, the listener question is the most important one. That's from at Sam Dobson one. I believe his name is Sam. Are Saints going to be able to hold firm and keep Virgil Van Dyke? Anyone?
3: i'll go because i wrote a piece this week saying who has the upper hand and i concluded that it was southampton because go on because the ball's in their court essentially now um like i said before we've seen this summer there's a trend of clubs being able to hold on to their players uh and they're willing to do it van dyke's on a contract that only expires in uh, 2022 uh and if southampton don't want to sell they don't have to they're We've heard reportedly they're, allowed, uh, they're willing to let him sit in the stands and basically rot. It's a World Cup year. All these factors mean that Van Dyke, sooner or later, may have to play and may have to back down. Um, so if Southampton hold their nerve, potentially, does that necessarily mean I see him there in September? I don't know. They could still be convinced if you're
2: bidding 60 upwards towards 70 million pounds. Mauricio Pochettino uh, is not their manager. Mauricio Pellegrino is their manager. I'm going to confuse those all season. Mauricio Pellegrino did well with Alaves last year. They got to the Copa del Rey final. Uh, They finished uh, ninth in the La Liga, if I remember correctly. You know, he's a young, talented Argentine coach. Argentina producing a lot of good coaches right now. Uh, What do you think he's going to bring to them? And and how bad was Claude Puel? I
0: mean, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? A young Argentine coach on the south coast. and i did went pretty well last time um with puel i think when he came it was one of those where he never coached outside of france and when he came to england there was a lot of you know how is he going to do and he didn't do too badly in the end but southampton now do need to make that step up and they need to be almost like on the same mission like everton to be do you think
2: it's fair to say that was a club that was taking kind of a forward step every season with puel they might not have gone backwards, but they, they just stay just still. Stays still. Yeah. Uh, tinkering of formations. Uh, I thought his team was boring, uh, so I'm not distraught to see the back.
3: Alves didn't. They, they didn't score many goals. Did they?
2: No, he's not an exciting. Uh, he is a, a Benitez disciple. Yeah. you know he, he knows Rafa from Liverpool and Valencia, and he likes that style of football. So don't expect to see Southampton scoring lots of goals. But if they're defensively solid and Nick games one 0 then they're going to be sailing up the table. Um, a team which I think could be setting down the table, uh, Stoke. They had a sneaky, awful spring. Uh, <laughs> they, lost, <laughs> they lost a lot of games. <laughs> they lost a lot of games. Mark Hughes is the favorite uh, to be the first manager to leave his post this season. They've got a curious squad. Um, they've got, they're, they're trying to strengthen the defense. They're trying to sign Bruno Martins Indy. That's a deal they completely botched this summer. Uh, they've got Kurt Zouma on loan. They're trying to sign Ryan Shawcross to a new deal. That would be a solid defence, I, I think. They brought in uh, brought Boyan back from from Mites on loan. Marco Analty, has gone for twenty odd, odd million pounds. It's a weird team this, but Darren Fletcher could be one of the best free transfers we think this summer. Critch, um, I'm not sure about the last point. He's definitely like a serviceable Premier League player still, but um, but how I mean, how, how often do you get a Premier League guaranteed starter for free? Who's going to perform at seven out of
3: ten level every week? Yeah, maybe. I was surprised that West Brom were willing to let him go, put it that way. But um, on Stoke, uh, I think, like you say, I think the squad is just so hodgepodge and quite odd. Like you look at the strikers, I just don't see where the goals are going to come from. Peter Crouch was their top scorer last year, and he's been spending the summer as a radio DJ. Like, so you know, <laughs> it's not it's not exactly it's not exactly perfect preparation. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a real kind of tipping point for them. Um, I think I wrote the preview about them and noted that under, in Matt Hughes's first three seasons, they finished ninth, ninth and ninth. And last last season was 13th. So they've actually dropped below average. They were perhaps the premium's average team and now they've dropped below it. Um, the fans are getting a bit tired. They want to see improvement. Like you say, if they don't get off to a good start, then... I don't fancy if it, uh, Marcus's chances of staying in the job which, uh,
2: which leads to the listener question for Miguel how long does Sparky have from at West
1: Stoke um, I mean I had heard up, up until I suppose a few months ago that Stoke were enjoyed the kind of pro- more progressive nature of his football that they felt he was very in tune with the club but so I think that's fairly that's results resistant to a degree unless they start the season badly, and well, actually, not start season badly. Because to be fair, they've had this a few times under under use. I mean, one of the issues at Stoke is that they've almost had half seasons a lot at the time. And this isn't the first time it, it, this has happened. And I think it was two seasons ago where they started to the leave very badly, but then gradually stabilised and began to play some great football. Mm. Um, so I think they will be fairly relaxed. But if that if this extends and becomes an issue onto November December. Then I think that's when it could get tricky for you. The guy
2: to watch, a uh, guy I wrote about the other day, Ramadan Sobi, young Egyptian winger who probably went under the radar. But if he has a big game on TV this season, I think everyone will be talking about him because he's a very talented young man. Next up, Swansea. Uh, we'll go to the resident Welshman. Uh, how do you feel about? I don't know how you feel about Swansea uh, <laughs> as a Cardiff fan? But what do you think for Swansea this season?
0: Uh, I think they are in trouble. I think. Last season's performances showed that they they stay they they're holding off relegation. Whether it will happen
2: this season, but Paul or not. Clement did turn them round. He did after actually last season was sneaky disastrous. If you think about uh, the Bob Bradley experiment, uh, Francesco Guideline, if yeah. you can remember him, was yeah, their exactly. manager at the start of last season. But Clement did turn things round.
0: Yeah, I mean whether that is the case of a new manager just bringing in a new bit of life, or whether he is actually a long term option for them. Is he a good manager or is he just a good coach? I think that's what he needs to prove this season. Um, I think I think they'll stay up just, but a lot rides on whether they can keep their best players. Obviously, Sigson looks like he's going to go. Uh, Lorente was linked with what, Chelsea, Chelsea yes. of all places, but it looks like he's probably going to stay now. A lot of rides on his goals from last season, whether he can replicate those, will have a big say in
2: whether they stay up or not. The listener question comes from uh, Miguel's friends, the analytics community. Is Daniel Altman's recruitment turning this club around? Daniel Altman, if you didn't know, is a guy hired by the American owners of of Swansea to oversee recruitment. He's uh, led a a stats-based Recruitment program, which has included the signings of Roque Messer for 11 million pounds from Las Palmas, who is an excellent defensive midfielder. They've also signed a couple of other guys he, I can't he, remember. Also, he was one of the
1: less abrasive members of the uh, analyst community when yeah, he Yeah, no, but I think they've signed like well. Against analytics, I <laughs> think <laughs> they've signed well. Um,
2: <laughs> I think they've signed well. They've got a good coach. Yeah, they they don't suffer when they go through bad streaks of form. They don't. They're not under the same media glare, I think, mm. as if West Ham, for example, went under that same form, that they would have that highlighted quite aggressively by uh, the lo- local media in London and, and such like. Swansea do go under the radar slightly. Do you think if you know they have recruited well this summer, Critch, then they could easily just return to be that you know the example club as they were probably for the last three four years. The example club. Um,
3: I think there's still a little bit w- away way off that level. To be an example club, you're looking at someone like
1: Southampton, for example, okay. who um well, you know, a challenging. Not to cut across you, but I think that's, yeah, quite, that's irrelevant to Ed's point about how uh, other clubs, this would have been more scrutinised. But basically, I, mean, I think it was true for, for a while, Swansea were kind of, they had a very, very defined football model, a very defined philosophy, and they kind of departed from that over the last few years. And not not much was made of that, I don't think.
2: there is, I think it also happens with Bournemouth, and and purely from uh, my job logistical point of view, it is because Bournemouth is one of the you know is where Mm. people don't have they don't tend to have reporters based the national newspapers don't tend to have guys based down there. So you see them when they're on TV. That's a lot of people's consciousness about Mm -hmm. Bournemouth comes from when they're live games on TV. Whereas there are other clubs who might not be live on TV, but you'll hear regularly about in the news cycle. And I think Swansea and Bournemouth fall into that. That guy. And, and perhaps Stoke as well, because it's like I said, Stoke's run of form in the spring last year was dreadful. And if that was at a club with a probably a bigger media glare, then we would have heard a lot more about it. So we think Swansea, we think Swansea could be okay. Uh, next is Tottenham. Everyone in this room tipped Harry Kane to be the top Premier League goalscorer, except me. I went for Gabriel Jesus. Uh, Spurs haven't really been that busy, Miguel. How do you feel about Mauricio Pochettino's squad going into this new season?
1: Um, if you can keep it together and happy, I actually think they could go in for another title challenge. You think they're
2: title contenders? Uh, because I
1: think, yeah, I think the, the, the set quality is there. Um, I think they've got the scope to grow even more. I think maybe they have, um, they maybe do require a little bit more something different than attack. I think, in some of the moments difficultly last season particularly like the october run maybe towards the end in some of the, some of the games or or actually the FA cup semi-final against chelsea uh, some, sometimes with spurs when they're dominating and especially it becomes especially conspicuous when kane isn't there because the runs he makes but it feels like he's just going in a kind of a blunt way they just going to batter a team down but there's not much nuance so if it's, if a if it's, if, it's, if it's a team gets comfortable in kind of standing up against them which you've seen from west brom they can be a little easier to resist like they they think they could do which someone to come on that offers a little bit more create creativity, um, so that's maybe one issue we've got. But but two concerns I would have: a, um, th- their home form was so central to that title challenge last season in the sense that because of the aura around White Hart Lane, they, it, it almost just gave them that extra boost. And while I th- I think some of the Wembley stuff is overplayed, what is legitimate w- will be that they won't be able to rec- they just won't be able to rec- recreate the vibe that they had at White Hart Lane last year. So that would be, a, I think, a drop in points there. So they need to kind of make that up away from home. Um, and secondly, this growing issue where a lot of the players are justifi- justifiably aggrieved the fact they could be making a lot more money elsewhere. I mean, it, it is it is amazing that you know, mid-table clubs are paying more to some of their players than some of Spurs' real difference makers. I mean, Danny, I mean, Danny, it, it
2: Danny Rose, you were saying, uh, it was probably the best left-back in the league last mm-hmm. season. And he earns the same as,
1: as Connor Wickham. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's a testament to Mauricio Pochettino and the sense that he's managed to actually stave this issue off for so long. But it does feel like it's coming to a little bit of an impasse. And uh, the, the listener question we have, if Spurs sign Ross
2: Barkley, Balde Keita and a right-back with two legs and a pulse, would this be a successful window? That's from uh, at Spurs underscore report. Broadly speaking, they haven't signed many players. Mm. We think they could sign up to three before the end of the window, you think?
1: Yeah. Barkley... Backley can be exactly what I was talking about there. And it's someone that gives you something a little bit different in those games where suddenly they're battering down the door to, with nothing opening.
2: They want a wide forward for sure. They, yeah. they looked at Zaha at the start of the summer. Carter Balde from Lazio would be interesting. They do need a right back as we discussed. But if they get those those guys, you think they're title challengers mm. for sure. How are they going to do in Europe?
1: Um, I remember talking to someone close to Spurs last season who felt that one issue they had was that while the intensity of their football is very well suited to Premier League. They one of the one of the reasons why they were bad at Wembley uh, in Europe, and one of the reasons why they struggled in Europe was basically that intensity um, doesn't work so well against European sides, where they could do it maybe a little bit standing off a little more, a little bit more patience. Uh,
2: we'll move on from Spurs. Uh, I do think they're an interesting side. Watford uh, are up next. Uh, listener question is probably the one that really sums everything up. That's from Elliot Gibbons at the midgety one. Uh, it seems weird to label your Twitter after a sexual preference, but there you go. Elliot asks, have Watford quietly had one of the better transfer windows? I will broaden that out. Have they had one of the better summers? Because they were very quick to secure Marco Silva, who was one of the most wanted managers at, at the very, very start of the summer. In fact, the very end of last season, they've bought Nathaniel Chalobah on the cheap. They've bought Will Hughes on the cheap. They've got Andre Gray, cheap-ish. Mm. What do we think of Watford?
3: Um... I I tipped Watford to go down last season and then got a message in April from somebody saying could I tip them to go down again because obviously they were staying up. Uh, So I didn't this year, so (laughs) you're probably going down. Um, But yeah, so Watford. uh, I like some of the signings and I definitely like the silver appointment. What's key, I think, is silver's reputation uh, was basically built on that time at Hull and he spent a lot of money in January. Um, The signings this summer, Chalabu and Hughes... Like you say, relatively cheap. I think it's good. Gray, they needed a striker, but for 18 million pounds, he's he's still a little too erratic, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't firing on all cylinders at Burnley last season. Certainly, I, I think Volk's actually finished as their top scorer. So um, so I, I, it should be enough to see them not be one of the worst three teams in the league. But and Silver's appointment uh, will help with that. But I don't see great things for them.
2: West Bromwich Albion uh, next. The listener question from at Jake Gibbo, Jack. Why are West Brom? (laughs) (laughs) Why are West Brom? It's uh, it's obviously a a joke to all our our baggies out there. I think uh, Tony Pulis is arguably one of the best managers in the Premier League in terms of what he does every season. But after 40 points last year, their fall off was unbelievable. Do they have the stomach or ambition to kick on from that this year? Well, I think if you remember
0: when Leicester won the league, everyone was saying that is what a Tony Pulis team should be aspiring to do because Leicester hit that 40-point mark and then they kicked on and then they reached Champions League and then they kicked on. Whereas West Brom hit that 40-point mark and they stop. They think we're safe, job done for the season. I mean, where's the goal? Where's the end goal? If just staying in the Premier League as their end goal then
2: fair enough financially
0: uh, that is enough these days and I suppose for a club that you know who have nicknamed boing boing from how much they've gone up and down in the past then yeah Premier League stability is not something to be sneered at
2: they want to sign uh, Troy Deeney to strengthen Mm. that attack they've already got Salomon Rondon I guess the question uh, Miguel is do you think uh, he's good enough if they only go into the season with Rondon as their main man up front well I suppose
1: I think it will be a Problem for them, especially because of the way Pulis plays, um, they can be quite reductive team, as we know. And yet, I think bizarrely or oddly, one of the most exciting teams in the Premier League of the last few years has been, um, and you like to said, was that Palace team when he had them staying up uh, in the 2013-14 season. So some of those games, because of the type of player he had, he knew how to use those fast swingers in the break, yeah. and particularly that game, that famous game against Liverpool, the three all, when they're actually often exhilarating. But it's very rare we've seen that from a Peuler's side, um, and he doesn't seem to have that sort of player now. Because and usually, his football falls into a certain template. Um, yeah, and I think that, that that could be an issue. But I mean, we were saying about the that some West West Brom fans could be offended by the question of why is West Brom. But I think there is a, a bit of a growing disenchantment there. About, about the way pulis manages and what he's made the team become because it, in in this era of the premier league where it's all about kind of the, the assertiveness that money can give you and kind of teams playing more expansive football it does feel a bit deadening to just you know accept your place in my experience that is the pulis experience
2: yeah. that, that I think apart from stoke where he took the club into the premier league mm. every team eventually gets to the point where they are like what yeah. happens next because the whole reason everyone likes transfers and the whole reason everyone supports their team over it's imagination long term what is is possible yeah exactly that Mm. what is possible what could we become the reason Leicester's story was so great is because they broke down the walls of what they thought was possible with Tony Pulis those walls are not only built but they're coming towards you and they're stood on top of
1: you (laughs) and West Brom almost define a deeper question for the Premier League that also kind of um, I suppose Leicester brought into perspective but think about everyone goes on about Leicester being an example the sad thing is I think Leicester are essentially the exception that proved the rule and the reason it, that was so special was because it's, so, it's close to impossible to replicate. Uh, they not an example at all, I don't
2: think, actually. We're, just, uh, we're going from one West uh, to the other. This is West Ham, uh, the final club. We're finally there, Jack. The listener question, I guess, is the best way to kick this off. Uh, one of the funny ones we had. Is West Ham's transfer policy dictated by a child playing football manager to 2011? <laughs> it's a very, very good point. Uh, why, why do they ask that, do you think?
0: If you look at the players they brought in, um, Marko Natovic, a lot of people tipped in our predictions. Miguel loves fl- him, by the way. Miguel the defended oh, yeah. him
2: vociferously
1: last week. <laughs> I quite like, yeah, I, I don't know I've seen him. He's been good in big games. Yeah. Uh, Chikorita, what do you think that?
0: Chichir- I I, Chikorita, th- I think he's either going to be the signing of the season or the flop of the season. In my predictions, I went flop. I hope I'm wrong because I love that man. But...
2: I'm he's not never sure. In a, I don't think he's I, played in a team as bad as this before.
0: I don't think so. Yeah. And also, I'm not sure he's ever played as a lone striker, which he
2: may well be doing at West Ham. Well, you know, if Andy Carroll's fit for maybe three, four games this season, he could <laughs> have a, a strike partner. What do you think of Joe Hart? Joe Hart. I mean, it's a
0: solid appointment for a goalkeeper, but whether it's inspiring or not, I'm not quite sure. Um he again, like the listener question said, he would have been a brilliant signing three or four years ago.
2: Uh, is uh, he now? The though? other the interesting thing in that listener question uh, is who is West Ham's transfer policy dictated by, essentially? Because do you remember when they signed Piatt, and mm-hmm. basically David Sullivan came out and took all the credit for it? Yeah. Um And Karen Brady said something really, really peculiar about Joe Hart, uh, if I remember correctly, that. You know They they signed him basically because they had him at Birmingham on loan when they were there, and he's a nice kid. <laughs> Who is in charge at West Ham? Who, if you've got David Sullivan digging in here, and then you've got David Gold coming in with another transfer, it feels like agents perhaps have, have a, a lot of influence. Like, is Slavin Bilic requesting these players? It's a very weird
3: club. It's, it's, it's hard to tell. I know that,
2: like many clubs in the Premier League especially, um,
3: they have got... An analytics department, we've talked about it already. They've got Rory Campbell, who's Alistair Campbell's son there, who is in charge of that, who recommends players. Uh, The extent to which he's listened to, uh, I don't know. Uh, It's hard to tell from the outside looking in. It doesn't look like he's been paid that much attention. But, um, yeah, something just doesn't sit right with West Ham again. You you think they'll be okay, but looking at the squad, it's hard to see how it all comes together. But it did
2: feel like last season went pretty badly in terms of the london stadium move everything that went with it do you think there is potential for an uptick this season like because they do have one of the bigger wage bills in, in that mid table and usually that does correspond to league finish true um i think there is potential for an uptick definitely
3: but it, it's just where's it going where's it going to come from um like i said there's no kind of fluent idea throughout the team at the moment and uh it looks like there was a, there was a point last season I did their game, uh, their defeat at Arsenal uh, in, I think it was about early April. And after that game, it, it looked like they were about to be dragged into the relegation race. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen this season, but there will be those moments here and there where
2: you think, what's the idea here? Where's it going? Miguel, one quick word on West Ham. What is the
1: idea here and where is it going? Um, Again, they're a club that kind of find themselves a certain quandary because there's so much scope there, particularly the fact they're based in London. And, and, um, and they've got a taxpayer funded stadium, Yeah, yeah. They, they, I mean, they can really expand. And there's almost an argument that they should be in the Everton position, except it's been such a kind of meandering approach to it. And even, I suppose, last season to go from. They, they were the Everton of 2015 16 when they had Piot and that, yeah. now, to go to the kind of the chaos of last season. Um, I, I think this actually happens a lot with Billich. And I quite like him as a man. As a as a man, I think, and he's got a lot of qualities as a manager. But you see it at so many of his of teams. He's been at, particularly Croatian, which there's his initial impact is disproportionately good, and then it just almost disproportionately falls as well. Um, I mean, Croatia went from being kind of a team tipped year 2008 to then they had a calamitous 2010 uh, campaign when England absolutely hammered them. And you've seen the exact same now at West Ham where they've gone from such an impressive side to one that was kind of so so beatable last season. And I think that uh, my fear is that they won't get much better until Bilic goes. So yeah, that is all
2: 20 teams previewed. Uh, that was a little bit longer than expected, but we are going to go ahead anyway and do our, our nostalgia section. As you uh, keep listening, you'll notice that a couple of these sections at the end of the podcast keep popping up. And uh, today's one is prompted by a question from Miguel himself, which was, uh, after 25 years of the Premier League, which was the greatest season? And Miguel, you're going to go early
1: 90s, I guess, knowing you, let me guess, 94, 95? Uh, That or 95, 96. I suppose part of it is always influenced by what age you were, you know, and the the effect it is. Um, but also, I think I mean, if you're talking about great seasons, I mean, obviously the most important thing is the quality, of the football. Sorry, the exi- how exciting or entertaining the football was and the matches it had. But also, I think basically me- memorable storylines and moments that really make a campaign stand out. And if you look at both those seasons, there was actually there was a ludicrous amount of, uh, of chaos of kind of talking points of uh, controversy. I mean, 94-95 had, um, you know, <laughs> before Wenger. Uh, someone who was Arsenal's great figures, George Graham, sacked for bungs. I mean, if that was to happen today, you t- think how sensational the story it would be. Um, it had a, 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 a Paul, Paul, Paul Merson's uh, country, or difficulties at the time, I should say, in terms of his, a, his, his admission of alcohol problems. Then it went on to kind of actual proper on unfri- pitch controversy of Cantona, probably the of greatest course, player yeah. in, the, in the league, jumping into the crowd. And beyond that, t- United finally denied the title for the first time in the three years of Premier League. But how that happened, which is, I think, probably the most remarkable last day of the season we've ever seen beyond 2011-12, uh, which I, I think... Beyond Aguero? I, 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 Aguero was better because it had the kind of, the, the release. But I think that, that was quite a strange game, the QPR city Very was. Very strange game. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think as brilliant as the moment was, there was a context of the fact that the QPR knew they were safe. Whereas... That West Ham United game, there was about fifteen minutes where I've, n- I've never seen pressure like it, uh, and just kind of it, it just seemed that a goal was inevitably. And West Ham just kept holding out, kept holding out. Added to that was the fact that Blackburn had actually balled it at, at Liverpool, who would have wanted Kenny Dalglish to be champion. Well, they would They never wanted United to be champions, but also yeah, had course. the extra edge of their great hero Dalglish managing Blackburn. So mm-hmm. there was just <laughs> so much going on there. Uh, and then the following season was, um, you know, we had as much with, with, with Keegan. With United coming back, you don't win anything with kids, Cantona's return. I mean, <laughs> I haven't seen too much to match that in recent Premier League history, bar 2011-12, I would say. How recent have you gone, Jack Austin? Uh,
0: I've gone for the 2002-2003 season, mainly because it was the end of an era. It was the, the last two-horse title race. It was the last United versus Arsenal, which had so many great battles down the That had defined the previous... What, six, like the six, whole Premier years. League era yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, excluding, excluding Blackburn but um, they, yeah they came from I think 15 points behind and ended to overtake Arsenal um, as Arsenal just completely crumbled I remember it was the game against Leeds with uh, a scoring which won United the league um, Like all those memories from that I just thought that was that summed up. I'd say the first half of the whole Premier League was that a vintage era as well. I it mean, was Thierry Henry at that stage. Well, it's the Henry against Van Nistelrooy for the golden boot every season, and that was great. And also, it was the a billion pound goal with um, Jasper Gronkjaar. Um Yes, oh god! I mean, uh, I mean, a
2: goal that changed. Well, it changed the, the whole Premier, the Premier League. League. Yeah, absolutely. That was arguably, one of the most important goals in Premier League history. Uh, and they say Abramovich would have tried to take over at Liverpool. Exactly. Uh, had Liverpool won that game. Uh, Critch, what what were you thinking, best Premier League season out of these 25? I've gone much
3: more recent. Um, I like the darkly comic seasons, so my (laughs) favourite one (laughs) is 2013-14, more because of uh, the impact it had on the northern clubs and specifically the two biggest northern clubs and the most historic clubs in English football, Manchester United and Liverpool. With United, you have it's the first season without Ferguson, and of course Moise's first and only season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh which week in, week out brought up new storylines.
2: <laughs> darkly, of... darkly catastrophic is the best description for that. I Definitely. can't think of anything to better describe that complete cluster of a season. Exactly, exactly.
3: Um yeah, I mean it just about had everything. The fall of a great empire. I mean, what what historic storyline is better than that? Um, but also you had Liverpool at the same time, and you know a lot of Liverpool fans look back fondly on that, but it comes w- at the end with uh, Gerard Slip and then Bull. And in a sense, that's a season that both those clubs are still trying to recover from. You have United. you know they still haven't yet really found their way to the top uh, post Ferguson, and that season for Liverpool has become um, something to look back on, but there's yet to be repeated. And it was very much. I know Gerard lasted the season longer, but it was it was very much the end of everything that uh, he'd worked for and tried to achieve at Anfield. So um, yeah, that, it seems like a pivotal season for
2: uh, Northern football. Uh, Gerard's slip made it into uh, Miguel's top twenty-five Premier League moments, uh, which was published the other day. Very good. Go and search that out on independent.co.uk/slash uh, football. Chris Campbell didn't make it.
1: Uh, Partially because of the fact I didn't want the abuse of, uh, <laughs> no, no, <I> <laughs> of two, of two ca- uh, cataclysmic Liverpool moments in the one list. Mm. But also, I, I think, be uh, as astonishing as that Kristan Ball was, in terms of, I mean, that that, that, that list was really about kind of uh, the historical impact yeah. and how, me- how meaningful the moments were in a, in a wider setting. And uh, with that title race, ultimately, it was really kind of gone with that Gerard slip, with the kind of Kristan Ball was just a kind of I did, fine I did love old.
2: I did love that. Uh, that season, that game in particular, when you're talking about Pulis earlier on, I've never felt such momentum Mm. at a game, such inevitability as when Palace scored the first goal. Yeah. (laughs) When Palace scored the first goal, uh, I was at Celeste and I was absolutely positive. In fact, I thought Palace were going to win it because the whole... uh, Liverpool just crumbled. It was like a a mental but very visible capitulation. Uh,
1: It it was To a certain degree, in terms of... The visible effects of psychology on football. The, the the only other match that scenes close to that was uh, Paris Saint Germain against Barca.
2: Yes, yeah. Um, of course, you were at that last year, weren't mm. you? That, that sort of impact where one goal happens and and you can see the defending team know that they are in so much trouble. It's, they know that yeah. the end, the final whistle cannot come soon enough. Um, for what it's worth, I probably would have gone with the same as Critch. I think that was brilliant. I do think the the Aguero season just because it has such, by far, the best moment that's ever happened in the Premier League. Uh, Where I'm not a Manchester City fan. I was watching that with my friends, none of whom were Manchester City fans, and we were all on our feet going ballistic because it was just one of the great pure football moments. Uh, So thank you for your thoughts on that. Uh, If you've got any good nostalgia questions, please uh, get in touch with them. If you leave a review on iTunes and, and tuck your question in there, we will be sure to find them. So that, I guess, is all of it for today. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate that. Uh, we know there are a lot of podcasts out there, so committing your valuable time to us is, is great. And if you have 30 seconds more, then just make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get it fresh and hot out of the oven as soon as it's done every week. Uh, we'll be recording the next one on Monday, and I promise you it will not be as long as this. So if you really like us, then please hit us up with the reviews on iTunes, which really just helps us uh, because more people discover us. It's obviously great. It helps make the podcast better. But without further ado, I must thank uh, Miguel Delaney, Thank you. Mark Critchley. Thanks. And Jack Austin, producer Matt Murphy, and our friends at Acast for their time today. I'll see you next time. I've been Ed Malian. Goodbye.